a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good, except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing, he said. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because of this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I saw this post the other day on Facebook from a pastor. It said this, is it more healthy to dwell on the past abuse or contemplate on how powerful and capable you are in this moment? Dwelling on yourself as a victim only creates a cycle of failure. Don't let the culture deceive you into believing that because of what happened in your past, you are limited today. And another pastor in my city responded to this by saying this, but I thought we should be trying to win the gold medal in the victimhood Olympics. This is something I consider to be extremely harmful rhetoric that has been weaponized against so many people in the church. The church is called to be a place of healing, but is turned into a boot camp for overzealous MMA dropouts, more akin to the toxic culture of a frat house than a space of hospitality, grace, and healing that we are called to be. Since when did it become fashionable to be a judgmental fill in the blank? We have become callous in the pursuit to see our opinions and perspectives validated as correct. Our need to be self-righteous is only satisfied by making sure that others know that they are not righteous, that there is no room at the table for them. 
Too many people who have been called to be agents of reconciliation in this world have instead become online and offline religious bullies. 2000 years ago, we see this story play out in a similar fashion in the story of Zacchaeus. It's a story about religious folks and a person whose past has left them ostracized and marginalized from community. Zacchaeus is a man that is not used to being centralized in the story. In this story, he literally doesn't stand out in a crowd. Everything about Zacchaeus in this story signals that he is not a respected person in this community. Zacchaeus is the type of person in this story that everyone cracks jokes at. First, in a culture where running is undignified, Zacchaeus runs to Jesus. He climbs a tree. But even worse, he's a tax collector in the first century Roman Empire. And this is messy. And the crowd has a right to actually not like Zacchaeus. He's done some messed up things in his past. And the religious folks in this story can't help but gossip in the background about who they think Zacchaeus is and what they think his future should be. In this story, like many stories we tell, Zacchaeus' Zacchaeus's process is truncated into a few paragraphs. But in reality, the movement to wholeness is a journey that takes time. But whether it's this sort of instantaneous fashion, like in this story, or a slower daily one foot in front of the other, like my story and so many other people's stories, we see the invitation to be present with Jesus at the table as the catalyst for the movement towards wholeness. In a society that marginalized Zacchaeus, Jesus centers him. In a society that overlooks Zacchaeus, Jesus sees him. In a society that would never invite Zacchaeus to the table, Jesus shows up like Sidney Porte, making everyone else uncomfortable. Jesus is constantly eating with the wrong people. Jesus always seems to find himself at a table with misfits consistently. If we're not willing to sit with the wrong people, we will never find ourselves on the right side of Jesus. If the table always looks respectable, you are not at the table with Christ. Even when Jesus sits with the respectable folks, misfits show up and ruin the comfortable situation. And Jesus always welcomes them into the celebration. Here's the reality. We all have a story and people will always wanna tell you what your story needs to be, but your story is more than that. Your story includes the trauma of your past, but it also includes the healing and liberation of your future. Your story includes the highlights of your past, but like a photo, it's only given definition when contrasted against the shadows. I agree with one part of the Facebook post. Don't let culture deceive you into believing that because of what happened in your past, you are limited today. But I would also say, don't let your self-righteousness deceive you into believing that because of what happened in your past, you are not limited today. We need to allow it all to exist, all of the stories to be told honestly. And when we talk about wholeness, when we talk about healing, when we talk about Jesus's table, we must realize that it all belongs, that we all belong. Luke doesn't tell Zacchaeus's story in isolation. He parallels it with the story told in 18, 
And these two stories of scandal play off of each other. They each center around rich rulers and highlight social scandal by the reaction of the crowd around them who see and hear Jesus' invitation into good and necessary trouble. Remember, this isn't a story of conversion for Luke, but of inclusion. So when Jesus says in 19.9, today salvation has come to this house because he truly is a son of Abraham, it's proclaiming a Jewish story about those who anticipate the reality of God with us, thinking that because of Zacchaeus, God could never join. They are watching as Jesus wrestles with the boundaries drawn around communities because they were too small for Christ to enact his kingdom. So if we are going to walk with Jesus, we cannot deny him by shrinking the table to the right kind of people. We have to learn how to embrace the scandal of inclusion we need to recover scandal to discover Christ, but it must be the right kind of scandal. This will be a little frightening since embracing scandal acknowledges we lack control of outcomes and guest lists. It'll force us to trust the process of Christ's table. The parallel stories in 18 and 19 shows Jesus forming community made up of presence, participation, and the promise of the unexpected guest a place where scandal is embraced as long as it creates room for more kinds of people to be present. Both stories mark the one talking with Jesus as archon or a ruler and says that they are exceedingly rich. The first one, which is the ideal ruler, asks, what must I do to inherit life in the age to come? He is the ideal. He's the one that every Bible college trains you to become. He follows the Torah flawlessly since youth, wealthy, which is seen as a sign of divine blessing, and he's asking the right questions. Like Zacchaeus, he comes to Jesus, standing before him, anticipating the kingdom. He asks the question of what it means to inherit. But when he was asked to let go of all his markers of blessing, to move towards people without rank or affluence, to let go of his well-established and traditional boundary markers to follow as a disciple. It says, upon hearing this, he became overwhelmed with sadness because he was exceedingly rich. And for those of us who would immediately think, oh, he's just greedy. If you substitute rich, he's exceedingly blessed. The system works for him. This is the one that you want your kids to be. This is who, when you go through any biblical discipleship, this is who you have in mind. His angst is shared by the people as they watch him walk away. When Jesus says it'll be so hard for the rich or the blessed to be able to come into the kingdom, they all ask, if not him, then who could be part of this? Who can experience salvation? And this was the first scandal, the scandal of the expected walking away, the one that every biblical discipleship class would try to shape you into. And this scandal parallels to Zacchaeus, who was a ruler too, just a ruler of tax collectors, making him a sinner, the very reason God could not be here now. He asks no questions. He just abases himself to get a glimpse of Jesus, a glimpse of what he hoped could come. When Jesus saw him, he spoke to him. And in 19.6 says, hurry down, I need to stay at your place, in which Zacchaeus' response is one of joyous acceptance. It says he rushes down from the tree, 
brings Jesus into his house to receive hospitality joyously. And he responded by giving away wealth to restore relationship. He responded by giving away blessing to be with people. There was no mention of confessing sins, denouncing acts, just a joyful and costly move towards community. Those who saw Jesus at Zacchaeus' table became scandalized, in which they all looked at each other and they complained, saying, he stops to enter into the household of a sinner. They would have been even more scandalized if the blessed ruler, the ideal one of 18, accepted the invitation to come and follow because they would have seen him sitting and receiving hospitality from Zacchaeus and thought this Jesus corrupted the poor man. This Jesus broke a good disciple. These stories read together place the holy and the common, the ideal and the blasphemous next to each other. The twist is God was found at the blasphemous table while the holy chose to walk away because he had too much to lose and I'd say for us, we've become so satisfied with the expected and comfortable with control that we train disciples for walking with the rich young ruler rather than Jesus. We forget that the one who needed to change to be present at Christ's table was the ideal one, that he had to accept Christ's invitation to follow him towards the center's table, a table defined by presence, participation, and the celebration of unexpected people showing us God with us, where we are invited into the scandal of being fed from the sinner's hospitality, not by turning them in to the ideal young ruler. Zacchaeus himself invites us to discover Jesus by recovering the scandal of inclusion, which expands where God can be found. But we don't have some of the same markers. So if we're gonna to try to enter into the story, we might want to ask rather than who is the right kind of Jewish person anticipating the kingdom and start saying which Christians would be scandalized to be at our table? Would it be the ideal ruler or the tax collector? Who would experience the draw to try to change and to become something to sit at the table with us? Would it be the one where Christ celebrated the table or would it be the one that he said, you have one thing lacking. Let go of everything and join me in moving towards Zacchaeus. Man, so basically, man, let's let's just take a moment. Like, let's kind of just uh, unpack some of the stuff that we talked about, man. I'd love to just hear your thoughts about how you're responding to both of those things actually moving together. That's the thing that we have to remember. Like, what does our call do? Who are we willing to scandalize to make the table? have more representation, have more people being able to be present. If you're only willing to scandalize those who might bring you um, under scrutiny to other people within your religious tradition, and you're not willing to embrace inclusion by saying those who actually like in the story, th there's real angst. Zacchaeus has done real harm. So it's not like he was a saint and we're saying, oh, he's just a little bit different is like Jesus brought him to his own table and then didn't insist on reform. But because of that act of Jesus's table, he said, I must move towards restoration of people. So we see this effect of presence, equaling participation in the restoration of other peoples being brought about 
because only a tax collector would know who he harmed and needed to restore relationship with. So only the people who have been affected and only some of the people who have affected can say, here's where I can see the restoration of Jesus coming. And because of this, I move towards. And the table becomes expansive and generative and it must be longer. And because yeah. of Jesus, we can't shrink the boundaries. Otherwise we become antichrist. We move against Jesus by shrinking in the boundaries to include only the ones we're comfortable with. Yeah. And, and I think like, like I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And what it makes me think of this quote from David, David Fitch. And again, like when we're talking, like I would just say, I'll just preface it by saying like, when we're talking about the table and even the table of Christ, um, like maybe we don't explicitly say it all the time, but like we're like like this is Eucharistic language. This is language of communion. This is language of the Lord's table, Lord's supper, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so like when we actually take the bread and the wine together, when we actually move together in those ways, we are actually enacting the stuff that Glenn is talking about right now, right? That you're talking about right now. But it, but I'll just say that it goes to this this quote from David Fitch that I, that I always love. Um, we live in a world that hungers for Eucharist, the sweet fellowship people experience in the presence of Christ. There are countless places where people gather to seek Eucharist, and yet it remains unfulfilled. We must seek out these places and go as guests. And that's what we see happen in the story, right? Like Jesus literally is bringing the party to Zacchaeus' house. Um, and, you know, if there's a good party, there's always going to be haters at that good party. Um, but that's what Jesus is doing. I think it's, it's like this, this is probably... And I've never thought about it this way before, if I'm really honest about it. But like, as we're unpacking this story, this is probably one of the more profound um, Eucharist passages in the Gospels. Hmm. And I would ask, because, yeah, I, I love that. And But what really hits me in that is if we're supposed to be the body of Christ, most of the time I, I've seen when the body of Christ moves, it wants to dictate where it lands. Yeah. So it says here's the moral coding that we want to insist upon. So what is that difference when we come as guests, like uh, David Fitch said, when we join Jesus in becoming a guest of Zacchaeus rather than uh, someone standing over? Yeah. Well, I think like, I think it's, it's really easy. For, like for me, at least um, like if I, if someone invite, if I'm going to somebody's house, right. Like I, like I don't just open the door and walk into the house, right. There's, there's, I, I knock on the door. There's, there's permission. There's, there's allowing other people they're actually deferring to other people first and foremost. And when you walk to the door, it's like, it's like, what are the rules of this house even? Right. Like, do I take my shoes off at this house? Do I leave my shoes on at this house? We ask these kind of questions. Right. We don't. And then we don't walk in and be like, all right. Oh, you guys were making all that food. That sounds nice. But I brought KFC with me. You know what I mean? Like we actually defer to what is happening in that space and, and enjoy the hospitality of that space. And I think so when we show up as a guest, it's not because um, like we, we want to put the onus on somebody else, but we actually want to put. Like we want, we want to create space for the reciprocal, the, the reciprocal idea of blessing to take place. Because sometimes when we show up, like if you're a good guest, you don't show up empty-handed. You bring a nice bottle of wine with you. You bring some, you know, you bring a dessert with you. You bring some. It's collaborative in that piece, but it's still deferring to what is happening in that space. And I think, like, like, like at least in my perspective, 
of, of, of the way I understand kind of dominant culture Christianity in this moment, at least within North America, is even with our big push to like, we have to go invite your neighbor to church, go invite so-and-so to church. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the reason we want to do that is we want to set the terms. We want to dictate the terms of how they can be present. But if we show up to people's houses, we have to say, what are the terms of me being present here? And me being present here allows us to, you know, like me coming as a gracious guest that in that sense actually creates a very, very different dynamic where we let go of any sense of power we think we have. Mm. No, no, that's good. And especially because we've all had those experiences. At least I know in the back of my mind, some of them are family. Some of them are friends. We all know those bad guests. The yeah. one who steps in and then like a party that Brittany and I were, were throwing and a guy came in as the same thing, didn't take off his shoe. He's like, oh, it's hard to reach my shoes when everyone else's shoes were at the door. And then I went to grab some food and all the food was gone. And he was eating. He goes, oh, you didn't get any? This is my third plate. And I was like, aha, awesome. Yeah. Um, like we, we have the moment that people jump to mind. And so Christianity, because um, right now, like that study that came out that said there's like, a the largest percentage of people no longer that were raised within religious systems are no longer claiming any affinity to those and i think it's directly re related to this we've realized beauty in people but we're never allowed to engage them because we have to come in as masters we have to come in as controllers we have to come in and dictate terms like you said we can't come in and celebrate we can't come in and say what are the rules of your house what does it look like for me to respect and to honor you, Carl, when I come into your living room, eat your food, and I sit with your friends. Because yeah. um, often we've been taught, well, no, you can go into those places, but as soon as you walk in, one, they need to know what kind of Christian you are. Two, if you see anything colorful, you need to call it out. You have to name a sin a sin. And then you need to have a salvation message at the end of the weird dinner party that you ruined. Um, Rather than saying, wow, thank you so much. This food was amazing. Yeah. You were so hospitable. The grace of this house is beauty. Like yeah. we, we think we have to come and fix rather than experience. Yeah. And I, yeah, no, I agree, man. And I think like that's, that's the beauty of not just seeing like the Eucharist as like this trend, this action that we do in, in, in a church building or something like that. But we actually mm -hmm. see every table that we um, show up to as guests that we host in our homes, that we, that we are present at as an opportunity to enact the Eucharist. Um, and when we look at it that way, we, we see the beauty that you're talking about in the world around us. It's, but at the same time, we also see it within our own houses. We also see it within the body of Christ. Right. And so like, this is not to, I, 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 I never, I don't want to like shame other Christians be like, like you can't possibly be da 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 da. You know what I mean? Cause I think it, we, 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 we end up getting up on our own self-righteous soapboxes and, and, and becoming judgmental and becoming the like recourse in a sense mm -hmm. uh, of, of this story. Uh, but at the same time, let's, let's, we want to celebrate it. We want to celebrate where we see goodness. We want to celebrate where we see the beauty. We want to celebrate where we see grace. We want to celebrate where we see Christ present. And I think that's the beauty of, 
what it means for us to show up as guests, but also for us to be a people of invitation and hospitality. Like it's both and all of it belongs at the table. No, I really appreciate that. What you said that every space, um, cause kind of like last week where we talked about, um, Eucharist invites us to stop looking at heaven, to look across the table Yeah. in the same light. Um, you're saying every table, we actually stop looking up towards heaven for the divine ideal and start discovering Jesus in the eyes of the ones in front of us. And we come as gracious guests of this table, which means sometimes we bring things and sometimes we allow other people to do things to make sure that they see themselves as value added. Yeah. It becomes a Eucharist table, that it's that relational exchange, not just the ritualistic act. It's those moments when that's what the ritual is supposed to remind us of. That as, as we consume the broken body of Christ, as we like to say within the community, become the broken body of Christ, it enables us to see each other as incarnate, to see each other as a place where Christ dwells in many different forms and ways. And the more we can become attuned, the more we can see that, the more each table can actually have, um, as we like to say, a sacramental reality, a sense of a touch of grace that we can experience God in Eucharist in that moment. Yeah. But it's linked to me seeing God in you, me seeing Christ and reflected in you, not in me trying to make that happen. It's a, it's a response, not a um, strong action. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, like, I, I can't help but think of uh, like the the, the Orthodox, the, like the Orthodox Church's stance on the Eucharist, um, mm -hmm. and where they say that a church is anywhere that the Eucharist is administered properly. Um, and I, I get that we have a different take on what we mean by proper when we say that, but I, but I, I love that actual like language, like like the church or the table or the Eucharist, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff is where, when the Eucharist is administered properly, when we show up and the Eucharist is present, uh, when the presence of Christ is, is acknowledged in, in, in the way, in, in the ways that we're talking about today. Um, that's a beautiful thing. That's, that's the church in the, when, mm. you know, when Christ is present in a way that transforms and, and heals a person like Zacchaeus, that is, that, that, that is, that is the church. You know what I mean? When the invitation is extended to those, um, who would be ruined as the perfect disciples, you know what I mean? Like, like and because of the presence of Christ, like that is the church. And and, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think we, we probably, as I said, we probably have a little bit of a different take on what we mean by administered properly, but there's something beautiful about that, that, that whole expression.